Welcome to Seminars at Steamboat, lectures on important public policy issues recorded in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. The following seminar features Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo delivering a lecture called The Future of Public Health, Why We Should All Be Concerned. Dr. Nuzzo is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, whose work focuses on global health security with a focus on pandemic preparedness, outbreak detection and response, health systems as they relate to global health security, biosurveillance, and infectious disease diagnostics. This seminar was recorded on July 26, 2021, and was introduced by former Seminars at Steamboat board member Jane Stein. Hello, everybody. The COVID pandemic brought many things into our lives that we didn't want. But one, perhaps, that will be useful as we look ahead is a better understanding and an appreciation of public health. While it has long been a stepchild to healthcare in terms of funding, epidemiologists, like our speaker tonight, play a critical role in preparing for and forecasting the health of the nation, indeed, the world. Jennifer Nuzzo has many credentials to address this issue. Based at Johns Hopkins, she is a senior scholar at the Center for Health Security, an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and the lead epidemiologist at the COVID-19 Testing Insights Initiative at the school. She also co-leads the Global Health Security Index, which benchmarks 195 countries' public health and healthcare capacities and capabilities. In addition, she advises governments and both for-profit and non-profit organizations on pandemic preparedness and response. She's also been on numerous news shows, including NPR This Morning, where you might have heard her. But now you'll hear her here with seminars at Steamboat. Please virtually welcome Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo as she talks about the future of public health, why we should all be concerned. Jennifer. Thank you so much. It's really such a privilege and an honor to join you all and to be able to talk about this topic um, that is very near and dear to my heart. And um, I hope people have an increased appreciation for given what we've gone through in the past year and a half and um, continue to go through. Um, but I'm not going to only talk about COVID-19, I promise. I'll offer a broader view. So I'm gonna share my slides. So you can just see some pictures here. And so I'm gonna talk about public health and specifically looking towards the future. But in order to understand the future, I think we also have to look a little bit backwards to understand how the field has evolved and where we're headed. And just to give you a little bit of introduction to me and sort of the lens with which I view these issues, um, I got my start in public health um, as a practitioner working in New York City in the aftermath of September 11th. Now, if you were in the city at the time or if you watched the news in 2001, um, a picture of New York and the security uh, approach to New York City um, very much looked like this. We had lots of guns and guards positioned in, in really important areas like mass transit hubs shown here. So this was a fairly familiar uh, image of what security looked like in New York City in 2001 when I was working as a practitioner. 
But this was also security in 2001 in New York City and probably a less familiar image. Um, this little fish here is part of a drinking water quality monitoring system that was actually developed by the US Army. And this fish is essentially, if you've heard of the phrase canary in the coal mine, this is the fish who would be the canary. And uh, he's being monitored, actually, I don't know if it's he, but this little fish is being monitored um, for any signs of unusual behavior that may signify that he or she is being exposed to contaminants. And that potentially could provide early warning that the source water for drinking water in New York City um, has something that we don't want in it, that we didn't want in it. Uh, really, as you can imagine, an important consideration in the aftermath of of 2001, um, when there was all sorts of alerts in the city about subsequent attacks that were uh, potentially, uh, could potentially happen. Another image of security in, in New York City um, are these over-the-counter medicines. And this was actually my job back then, which was to monitor the sales of over-the-counter medications. The idea being that if a whole bunch of people in the city got sick at once, perhaps we could gain earliest indication that something was happening if instead of waiting for people to go to their doctor and get diagnosed with an official infection or to have a laboratory test to tell us what they have, that perhaps we could monitor the things that people would reach for first, the medicines to self-treat. And if there were perhaps unusual spikes in the sales of these products, it may signify that something was happening in New York City. So this was my job back then was to monitor the sale, um, one of my jobs was to monitor the sales of, of these products understand if something was happening in the city that we didn't want to have happen. So um, just kind of paint for you, maybe, as a probably emerging theme that will carry throughout the rest of my remarks about the intersection of public health and security. And for me, certainly that's, you know, this event of, of 2001 really shaped my career and, and took me from probably a more traditional public health path, what I sort of expected to be working on water quality and and, and drinking water, common waterborne diseases to think about um, other more unique, perhaps never thought of before threats. But I'm gonna back up a little bit and because this last, this you know, discussion is about the future of public health and just maybe pause, it's hard to imagine that having lived through the last year and a half that we might not understand what public health is, but nonetheless, it, it does mean different things than just responding to a pandemic. So what is public health? Um, for many, before a pandemic, if you ask people what public health is, they might have commonly perhaps thought of Jon Snow, um, who famously removed the Broad Street handle um, to a pump um, in, in suspicion that perhaps what was causing a, an outbreak of cholera may be linked to the source of drinking water. Public health has a lot of definitions. Um, it's not just <laughs> removing pump handles and battling pandemics. Um, it's, it's a fairly broad field. And I, um, in looking for definitions, kind of focused on two that I grabbed here. One is from the Institute of Medicine from back in 1998, and another is a more recent one um, uh, from the American Public Health Association. I like both of these definitions because they have, and I underscored it in red, they, they have actions there. Basically, it's the what we do as a society to assure conditions for people to be healthy. It's what we do to promote and protect the health of people where they live, learn, work, and play. That action suggests that we do something to make lives better. And, and we have done things that have had remarkable impact. And 
to call your attention to the right, which is a, a graph showing the incredible progress made from that, over the 20th century in terms of both increasing human life expectancy as well as decreasing infant mortality. Um, that didn't happen just as an accident. It happened through dedicated efforts to make people healthy, to create, to create conditions that would lead to improved health, that would lead to reduced death, that would give people longer lives. Now, who is the we in, in public health? You know, if, if important in the definition of public health is the action, who are the actors? Um, well, it's broad. I mean, it's not just government, though government plays an important role. It's also the private sector. It's also individuals, nonprofit organizations, businesses. Um, but if you're thinking in terms of government, Hopefully, when I ask you who promotes public health, who is responsible for public health, you considered your state or your local health department. And I say that because I don't think people fully appreciate how public health was organized in this country. And in particular, the fact that we have a federalist approach to health. We are a, a federalist society. The, the, the federal powers for the promotion or the ability to act to protect public health are derived from the constitution. And they're fairly limited. They really come from two general clause. One, our ability to tax, to provide for the general welfare, and two, for our ability to act to um, regulate interstate commerce. But everything else is really the purview of states. So the primary actors who, the, who have primary governmental responsibility for the promotion of public health are state and local health departments. Now, where does this all come from? I mean, obviously the federalist approach to public health is um, written into our constitution, but where does the idea of public health departments come from? Well, you know, back in the 1850s, there was really a push towards, you know, the sanitary movement, a push to increase the sanitary, improve the sanitary conditions, particularly as lots of people were, uh, began living in cities. And there was a seminal report that was written in the state of Massachusetts in 1850 that really outlined an approach to the improvement of sanitary conditions in the state of Massachusetts. And that report, I have a picture of it here, uh, really became the foundation for what ultimately um, are the public health departments that we now have in many states. This report called for the, de the development of state and local health departments that would be responsible for sanitary inspections, vital statistics, providing services for infants and children. These are still very much the actions that state and local health departments undertake each day. And they have their foundations in the middle of the 19th century. Um, the list con contains all of those things I said on the previous slide, but the list of things that public health departments do has grown over time and it's fairly broad. I have here just, you know, an incredible list that they, um, you know, of course work in terms of uh, infectious disease epidemiology, like what I do and did back when I was a practitioner. Um, but they also have epidemiologists who focus on chronic disease, injuries, all sorts of other things, environmental health, um, all sorts of interventions aimed at regulation and improved sanitary conditions, inspections of restaurants and all sorts of facilities, really an extraordinary list of things that public health does day in and day out that you probably don't even see. Because really when public health is working, you don't see it because it's prevented something bad from happening. So who is doing that? Well, in the United States, there are about 3,000 or so local health agencies and about 59 state and territorial health agencies. 
And how much power each has really depends on each state. Public health agencies also, in many places, provide clinical services. They're in many places the safety net provider for people in the community who otherwise wouldn't be able to access care or able to afford care. So lots of clinical services, the diagnosis and treatment of sexually transmitted infections, tuberculosis, maternal and child health, really an extraordinary list of, of safety net clinical service provision that has not gone away despite the adoption of the Affordable Care Act, despite the fact that more people are now insured and potentially can seek care in the private sector, the safety net remains essential. And by the way, has been really fortunate that we have it because when we talk about doing things for COVID, like testing people to see if they have the infection at mass testing sites or administering vaccines at mass vaccination sites, it's usually the, clinic, the clinicians that work in these clinics, the public health nurses that are central to those roles. So really important um, activities that the public health does day to day, but also in, in emergencies. So that's just some kind of a lightning talk on what is public health. And now let's just talk about sort of where we were and where we are, and then we'll talk about where we're headed. So I thought this was a really interesting graphic, but this sort of describes where public health was in about the middle of the 20th century. So after World War II, um, the, the, the focus on infectious disease slowly began to decline. I like the, the title of this um, graph, The Conquest of Pestilence in New York City. Um, it's a very hopeful image suggesting that we had won the war on infectious diseases. Because in part, if you look at the deaths in the population over time, the deaths attributable to infectious diseases, particularly after World War II, greatly decreased. Now, some people say this is because of the um, invention, discovery of antibiotics and the, the um, making antibiotics more widely available. And those certainly played a role, but in truth, probably the larger impact is all of the actions that were taken by public health departments to reduce the spread of infectious diseases. Things like the continued chlorination, sanitation, inspections, all sorts of other things. Once we understood that many of these diseases were caused by infectious diseases, which you know wasn't always um, something that was well understood, uh, it allowed public health to act um, in a more targeted way. And, and that had um, considerable results for quite so, some time. In fact, you know, and about the, around the 1960s, at least domestically speaking, many were quite optimistic that the need to focus on infectious diseases was behind us and that the future would be other public health concerns. Key ones being non-communicable diseases. So cancers, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, diabetes, all things that started to tick up after the 1960s that became um, key public health priorities. Considerable contributions to overall ill health and overall mortality in the United States. And it remains a key public health focus area. In fact, the graph I'm showing, um, the map I'm showing on the left-hand slide of the slide um, is a recent picture of um, obesity, the prevalence of obesity in US states. An enormous problem in part because of what I show on the other side, which is um, aside from being an important uh, risk factor for a number of other um, concerning uh, diseases and conditions, it's also concerning from a national security perspective when it's one of the most common reason why young people may not be eligible to serve in the armed forces even if they want to enroll. 
So an important area of, of focus for public health to try to reduce levels of obesity in all of the policy dimensions and, and healthcare related um, factors that, that go along with that. So a key focus area um, in the past and certainly remains a key area of focus in the, the present, but um, non-communicable diseases didn't remain the only thing that public health uh, or the top thing that public health uh, became, was worried about um, towards the end of the 20th century. And in fact, one of the sort of great surprises I think for public health was the emergence and uh, global spread of um, the HIV. And this graph that I'm showing here is um, a slide that Tony Fauci uses when he briefs Congress. And I'm gonna show you the first, this is the first part of the slide and later I'll show you the second part of the slide. It was um, after one of his briefings, it was published in the Washington Post. So, so you can see both of them. I've seen him give this talk several times. And he said that when he arrived at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in the early eighties, his portfolio was HIV, as you can see here one single disease of focus. Certainly that HIV, I think, signaled a new era of concern about emerging infectious diseases. But it wasn't the only infectious disease of concern. In fact, one of the, the one event in that in particular that grew the portfolio of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and grew the budget of NIAID was in fact the anthrax attacks that happened in 2001. Now, there were other diseases on NIH's, um, NIAID's portfolio list by 2001, but the budget of that agency greatly increased with this event in part because of the concerns about what infectious diseases could do not only to US public health, but US national security. And if you don't quite remember what happened back then, it was, by, as far as outbreaks go, a fairly limited one with only you know, a few dozen people infected. Um, five deaths, but 91% um, you know, uh, of, of the cases occurred in male handlers and extraordinary political and economic consequences. So small by most outbreak standards in terms of total numbers of cases, but extraordinary consequences. And a real wake up call, I think, for the country in terms of how unprepared health departments were to handle acute emergencies like this particularly ones with the security dimension, and also the need to better prepare ourselves for these sorts of events. And so following this, uh, you saw a real increase in federal budgets for infectious diseases. The NIH got a big surge in funding and state and local health departments did as well. So following 2001, we went from sort of bare bones funding, federal funding for state and local health departments to a real um, noticeable increase nearly a billion dollars went to state and local health departments for public health emergency preparedness programs. And about half that also went to health ready hospitals for perhaps a surge of patients from another attack or some other event that could occur. Really big change. And really, I think helped to kind of give more energy to what had been sort of a nascent field of public health emergency preparedness. The field didn't start in 2001. Um, there were actions taken in the Clinton administration uh, uh, prior, um, but it really got uh, more attention, more resources, and um, you know, grew as a field following this profusion of federal funding um, after 2001. So I mentioned, I showed you the first half of what was on Tony Fauci's plate when he showed up at NIAID. 
This is what he showed in 2016 was on his plate. Really extraordinary jump, really extraordinary growth in concern in terms of infectious agents. More than 25 new agents in the span of you know, 35 years. Really extraordinary. All of these newly emerging, re-emerging infections. In fact, now on this graph, you see there's a black dot. That black dot is what is described as deliberately emerging, which was anthrax and the, the concern that biology could be misused as a weapon used to harm, that outbreaks could be deliberately caused. A whole new area of, of, of focus and something that the public health, the medical communities had never before considered possible. And then unfortunately in 2019, we added yet another disease to the list, which was um, the emergence of a new coronavirus. Now, maybe if I can just go back for a second to point out, just in case folks don't remember, um, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 was not the first coronavirus threat that we have faced. We had prior experienced two different epidemics caused by newly emerging coronaviruses. One was the SARS epidemic of 2003, which is on this graph, and the emergence of MERS-CoV-2, MERS-CoV, which is a Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And that's another new coronavirus that emerged, first recognized in the Middle East, but it's caused infections in the Middle East, as well as a fairly large hospital-associated outbreak in, in South Korea around 2015. So um, by the time 2019 rolls around, and really 2020 for most people, the emergence of a new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, that is capable of causing um, you know, serious respiratory illness um, was not a complete surprise by any means. It's an unfortunate one. And I pulled these data from today, just to, if you're curious what the current status is, um, more than 194 million cases reported worldwide. We very recently, in the last few weeks, crossed the very grim threshold of 4 million deaths uh, reported worldwide. Of course, the situation in the United States remains quite concerning. Um, more than 600,000 people have lost their lives to this virus. And 34 million people um, plus have become sick. And as if you're following the news the last few days, concerns about this virus are not abating despite the rollout of vaccines. Um, vaccines, of course, are our best defense against it, but there are still many people who are not yet vaccinated. And unfortunately, as a result, we're now seeing yet another rise in cases um, due to the um, lack, you know, gaps in immunity that exists throughout, throughout the country. Now, I mentioned that public health for a while there was particularly interested in the control of non-communicable diseases, and it remains concerned about the control of non-communicable diseases. Um, for a while in public health, there were sometimes these false arguments over sort of which was more important to focus on. Do we care about infectious diseases? Or do we care about non-communicable diseases? We in public health like to fight these false wars sometimes with each other, but the reality is it's all incredibly important. And Part of why it's important is that they're all connected to each other. And in part, our the grim tolls of COVID-19 very well track, unfortunately, with the level of underlying health conditions that exist in our country. Obesity, heart disease, diabetes, um, high blood pressure, all risk factors for developing severe illness. And if we had less of that in the world, fewer people would die from the being infected with SARS-CoV-2. 
So sometimes it's called a syndemic where we're dealing with both um, the pandemic of the infection as well as the effects from the, the global distribution of comorbidities uh, or underlying health that exacerbate the outcomes when people are infected with this virus. We are also battling another war and I can't emphasize enough how deeply concerning this one is. Now, we have for a long time in public health been concerned with misinformation, rumor management, the need to correct what people know about an infectious disease, vaccines, all sorts of things. We have known for a long time that there's been a rise in hesitancy about vaccines in part fueled by mis and disinformation. This has been a problem and it's not just a problem in COVID-19, we've seen it in other events. If you remember back a few years, you were probably hearing about um, concerning outbreaks of measles throughout the United States. The US was on the verge of losing its measles elimination status because so many outbreaks were occurring throughout the US in part because of lower protection in communities due to fewer people opting to vaccinate their children. That's a problem, but I can tell you as much as that's a problem, I have never before in my career seen the level of disinformation that I have been seeing in this past year and a half around COVID as a disease, the virus, its existence, as well as really unfortunately, the vaccines. This is an extraordinary problem that in my view, goes beyond anything we've ever experienced before. And in my view, you know, this is, this is informational warfare that just can't be left in the hands of clinicians and public health professionals to try to risk communicate their way out of. There are bad actors out there, including foreign governments who are trying to push the wrong information to undermine the United States of America. There are groups out there who are spreading disinformation for the purposes of their own profit. In fact, there was a study um, published by this group whose uh, website I cite here. If you're interested in these issues, I really strongly encourage you to check them out. Um, it's calling um, they, that they recently did a, an analysis of the spread of um, anti-vaccine information online and found that about two thirds of all of the anti-vax content that exists online are actually spread by 12 personalities. But they're not just 12 people sitting in their basement tweeting out the wrong information. They have huge businesses, sometimes spanning multiple countries with hordes of workers pressing out this information, but it's the same content. And I can tell you as someone who spends a lot of time talking to groups that are on the spectrum of vaccine acceptance, I can tell you, I hear the same lies over and over and over again, told in the exact same way, which suggests a common source. Really incredibly important problem that we're currently facing. And we'll continue to face in the future. And that takes me to really the, the forward look. What do we have to, to, to expect will happen in the future? Now, I hate to bring some bad news after a year and a half of incredibly bad news, but I have to push back on something that I think um, maybe a misperception that's out there. COVID-19 is commonly called a once in a century pandemic. And part of that is because of its similarities to the 1918 influenza pandemic. Similarities in terms of how society has been affected and the total you know, scale of the crisis and the tolls um, that we've so far experienced. 
but that comparison sometimes leaves people expecting that if we just get through this, we're good for the next hundred years. And unfortunately, that is very much not the case. In fact, if it feels like over the last few years, you're hearing about more and more strange viruses and weird pathogens and strange concerning outbreaks that are happening in, in different parts of the world, the answer is because you are. All of the data that we have suggests that the likelihood of these events is increasing. Global conditions favor the continued emergence of new pathogens. Often it's linked to the animal-human interface. So we're changing the planet in ways that allow us to encounter wildlife pathogens that we've never before experienced. And that gives them opportunity to spill over to humans, either through domestic animals or directly. And the more opportunities they have to do that, the more opportunities they have to be able to adapt to life in humans or to adapt to <laughs> replication in humans um, and potentially gain the ability to spread between humans. Now, that happened with HIV. Remember I said there was that big surprise that kind of changed our understanding of where infectious diseases were headed, right? HIV probably spilled over from, from wildlife, probably over multiple introductions to human life. Environmental changes, once it did spill over and gain the ability to, to be spread between humans, environmental conditions were such that it could spread around the world, right? Roads were built, people could move in ways that they could never move before, and with them went the virus. But that was in the 20th century. And in the 21st century, we can get anywhere in the world in 36 hours. So if a virus or some other pathogen emerges and is capable of spreading between people, the global conditions are such that it could easily cause outbreaks. And outbreaks can grow, say, you know, if it spreads into cities where there's increasing amount of density. And if we don't do anything to stop it, it can grow into an epidemic over a larger geographic area. And if we still don't intervene, then it can, unfortunately, go on to become a pandemic. Now, the ultimate goal for public health in the future is to stop that. We may not be able to stop the virus from jumping to humans, though some of my colleagues in the animal health world very much think that is possible if we learn better what makes that happen. But even if we can't do that, we can still potentially stop the virus that's circulating in a small number of humans before it becomes an epidemic. And if we somehow even fail at an epidemic, hopefully we can stop an epidemic from becoming a pandemic. I believe that epidemics and pandemics are optional. I, I, I couldn't work in this field if I didn't think that we could do things in order to stop it. But I think increased surveillance and having better public health capacities in all parts of the world is key to doing that. If COVID-19 has taught us nothing else is that we are all connected and that what happens on one part of the world affects all of us. I mentioned before that in public health, we often fight these false wars. And one of them has been whether you work on domestic public health issues or if you work on global health issues. I would argue that all public health is global health. Infectious diseases in particular show that, but the trends that I'm talking about exist, apply to all parts of the world. The rise in non-communicable diseases, rise in obesity, the rise in, in the, all the conditions that make us more vulnerable to severe illness when infection happen when pandemics happen, those are global trends and there are global drivers for those trends. So all public health is, is global health. There's also the possibility 
that what I've described is not the worst scenario that could potentially happen. And as I mentioned, I got my start in public health in the aftermath of 2001, when the intersection of public health and national security became quite apparent. Well, if the events of 2001 and the anthrax attacks that followed the attack on the World Trade Center, and the Pentagon taught us anything, it is that we have to imagine the worst potential threats and make sure we're prepared for them. We hope that they don't happen, but we have to imagine what they could be and prepared for them. And one of them is the possibility that someone, a state, state government, a fringe actor, could misuse biology for the purposes of causing harm. We've seen it happen with the anthrax attacks. It is possible that it could happen again with other agents, perhaps agents that are engineered to do worse things than their natural states. Now, unlike other areas of national security, I would argue that biological weapons are perhaps one of the most challenging. And, and to illustrate that, maybe to compare it to the concerns about nuclear weapons. So if you've spent any time following nuclear proliferation issues, they spend a lot of time talking about the numbers of nukes that countries have and trying to limit the number of nukes, trying to count the number of nukes. Biological weapons involve self-replicating organisms or agents. So number is not really a relevant factor to track because if you have one gram, you could have a kilogram or you could have a ton. And if you use a weapon that not only causes harm to the person who encounters it, but then allows that person to then go infect others, as we have seen in the past year, that can strike at the heart of such something that's so important to us, our abilities to trust each other, our abilities to rely on each other, it can undermine our democracy. And, and the way that governments have responded to the COVID-19 crisis, we're seeing right now crackdown on protests in Australia. You can really see how in an effort to try to control the spread of disease, we may put a asterisk next to some of our democratic principles. So really, I think important threat that we need to consider and plan for with the hope that it will never happen. But if it does, we're better off than having not thought about it in the first place. Now, what do I mean by think about this? Well, some of it is preparing ourselves to be able to respond. The tolls of COVID-19 are extraordinary. There was a, a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that was written by Larry Summers that as of fall of this year, estimated that the total cost of COVID-19 pandemic to the United States would be um, greater than $16 trillion. I think since then we have spent a lot more money, including on, on stimulus and other bills. And so I think we could safely say that we have exceeded those costs. But if you total up the amount of money that the US government has spent on readying health departments and readying itself for events like this, over the span of nine years, if you take a really generous view and try to count anything that sounds reasonably related, it's maybe at most $89 billion, which prior to this event seemed reasonable, but now I think we're realizing that we have underinvested. Now, I mentioned to you that 2001 really kind of heralded in a new era of sort of public health emergency preparedness, and we saw a huge bump up in resources provided to state and local health departments, as well as resources to federal agencies that were working on these issues, really important. Unfortunately, it didn't last. And this is what the budget looked like 
latest data I have here from 2013, but you can see a steady erosion of federal funding. On top of this, state budgets eroded, in particular after the 2008 economic downturn. And there have been many, many surveys conducted that saw that state and local health departments lost all sorts of personnel, some of the most experienced personnel, that unfortunately were just not in place when COVID-19 hit. So when this crisis struck us, we were starting from one of the weakest conditions that we had been in for quite some time. I really hope going forward, we just end this idea, this, this endless cycle of panic and neglect where an event happens, we vow never again, we plus up a whole bunch of resources, we provide as much cash and, and resources as, as everybody needs. And then a few years later, we start to get a little you know, unfocused and we say, well, that hasn't happened. And um, I worked with someone, um, DA Henderson, who was famous for many things, but one of which was um, having eradicated smallpox. And he used to liken this kind of panic of psych, um, this cycle of panic and neglect to the equivalent of if you spend all of these resources building a firehouse after a great fire, promising to be ready for the next one. And then after a few years, you don't have another fire. You say, well, that, that was nice. And then you dismantle the firehouse that you have. We don't really like to do that. Um, and we don't often do that. And we shouldn't do that. And we shouldn't do it for fires. And we shouldn't do it for public health. So I'll end on that note and thanks so much for your attention. And I just hope everybody um, continues to take care of themselves and their families. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Nuzzo. You've given us a lot to think about. Um, um, we agree that the funding for public health has never been a high priority. You've shown the data for that. Money isn't everything. What else needs further attention to further the goals of public health including having more trained professionals in the pipeline. What's the status of what's happening at public health schools in terms of training people for the future? Um, so I am happy to report that interest in public health has never been greater. Um, we've seen that firsthand at Johns Hopkins, uh, our enrollments have surged. Um, and in particular, I, I, I run a program on health security and we've had, you know, um, more applicants than we've ever had. My course has grown. I mean, extraordinary level of, Ill, of interest in public health professionals in, in the field and young people pursuing it. They've, they've lived through it. It's disrupted their lives and now they want to fix the problem. So, so that is really encouraging. The challenge will be whether there'll be jobs for them when they get out. Now, right now, and I think for the near term, there will be. And just as there was following 2001. Um, there was a lot of bodies that need replacing in health departments. Um, but um, the question is, will they remain? And I think that's a really fair question because you know, as, as important as federal funding is, um, it's a lot more fickle and hard for state health departments to fully hire people when they're grant funded. Um, so sometimes there are even uh, limitations on being able to hire because you have to pay into a you know, pension and other things and it's hard to do when there's a grant funded uh, uh, position. Um, but we have to fix this. I think in the last 20 years, I've studied a lot of different events, and I can tell you that probably the single most important resource to combat all of them has been trained, experienced people. You know, when you ask anybody what they've been through and how hard it was, and you ask them, what would you, do you wish you had had? They all say, we wish we had more people. So I, I think it's really important, and I, and I hope that this is the lesson that we don't forget. Thank you, that's a very good lesson. 
Um, you started out talking about federalism. Several states, excuse me, are passing laws to limit and in some cases prohibit public health measures from giving lawmakers powers to rescind actions by governors and state health agencies and to prohibit mask mandates. What are the long-term implications of measures such as these? Yeah, I mean, it's a real challenge. I mean, it's, it is the, the challenge of our federalist approach is the fact that when you have a national crisis, one in which no state is fully isolated from another. I mean, you can have one state that does all the right things, but then will be undermined by inaction taken by other states. That is, I think the real weakness of our federalist approach is that it, it makes it much more difficult to manage a national level crisis. Um, that said, the federal government isn't without tools, even if it is restricted in terms of its uh, legal actions, its, its authorities, um, there are other tools, one of which is the, the provision of funding. I mean, that has been largely the key uh, you know, mechanism by which we try to get states to do stuff. Um, so you know, if uh, the um, passing of seatbelt laws and um, uh, you know, minimum uh, drinking age requirements was done um, by, you know, was achieved by states wanting to get federal highway funds, then we need to think about um, the, the provision of public health funding and the requirements um, that may come, you know, may be necessary in order to unlock those funds. That said, we've seen limitations of that approach. And one of them has been in terms of the Affordable Care Act, where we've seen states that have refused to expand Medicaid enrollment um, for political reasons um, and have in doing so have um, forfeited um, federal funding uh, that would go to directly benefit states. So um, that is one approach. I think another approach um, that is also has its own limits is, is providing data so that people can see for sure what's happening in, in their own states. Um, but it's always a delicate balance between the federal government and states' rights and um, Sometimes that works out well, and sometimes it's challenging. Definitely challenging. Um, and retrospectively, one of our uh, listeners has asked, in your opinion, what was the 2016 and was the 2016 anthrax response um, and its increased public health funding reasonable and necessary, or was it an overreaction? I think it was necessary. I say that as someone who was working in public health at the time and um, saw how bare bones our agencies were. Um, I didn't initially have the internet on my computer because civil servants were generally prohibited from accessing the internet back then because people were more worried that they were going to waste their time, you know, visiting sites that government employees shouldn't visit. Um, you know, it's an incredibly important resource tool. I mean, I think we slowly learned how critically important the role of, of local government agencies are in, in acting to events. I mean, I talked about tracking um, the sale of over-the-counter um, medicines. And um, the reality is the way that we did that back in, um, you know, the, the early part of um, the 2000s was incredibly rudimentary. We get a grainy fax every uh, week from the the manufacturers or from the you know the suppliers, and you'd have to kind of eyeball it and type it into an Excel spreadsheet and, and plot the data. Um, even back then, that was an out of date approach, and it's certainly an out of date approach today. But the truth is, many health departments 
still rely on Excel spreadsheets and faxes. Um, so I think it was an important investment. It did help bring new resources into health departments. Unfortunately, a lot of those investments eroded over time. And I think it is important, incredibly important to modernize health departments so that they can keep up with current life. I mean, we have, you know, many people expect a level of information because we live in the era of amazon.com and big data analytics and everything. We expect that there are answers to questions because we are so used to searching for them and getting answers in a few seconds. Public health agencies just don't have the tools to, to make use of the data they have, much less go out and get new data sets. So um, we still need more investment, but um, that initial provision of funding, I think, was enormously helpful to try to modernize public health. You know, in 2001, if you had a problem, if you were a clinician at 5 p.m. on a Friday, you had to wait until Monday to get somebody at the health department to talk to because there wasn't 24 hour staffing. The provision of the provision of funds allowed health departments to change their whole operations and become around the clock more operational entities, um, which is critically important. Um, but that's something that requires sustained investment. Somewhat related to this is public health, like virtually all aspects of health-related conditions, raises ethical issues, including the allocation of scarce resources, who or which countries get or don't get life-saving medicines, for example, with um, Ebola, or a vaccine, and the sticky issue of individual rights versus the common good, which we're living through right now. What are some of the public health decisions that have raised ethical issues for you in, in kind of your practice? I mean, those are, that's, that's a really key list. Um, for me right now, the thing that I worry about most deeply is the lack of equity in the allocation of vaccines globally. Um, that's more than 75% of the vaccines that have been administered to date have been administered by 10 high-income countries. Less than 1% of the population on the continent of Africa has been vaccinated, and yet they're experiencing incredibly deadly surges right now. So I deeply worry about this. And, you know, especially at a time when we have vaccines going unused in, in US freezers, and we're talking about maybe possibly giving third, third doses, and maybe should we give it to our, our lowest risk kids, that's all great, but there are healthcare workers who are dying in other parts of the world. There's just unchecked spread in other parts of the world that potentially gives rise to yet another variant. Um, so I worry most about that. Obviously, allocation of other scarce resources, including medical care, that was something we saw particularly at the beginning of COVID-19, though, you know, still in some parts of the US, those are day-to-day -day questions when they have a surge of patients that exceeds what the capacity of, of you know, individual hospitals is, that is important. And then I have to say, just the whole approach to controlling the spread of COVID, I think is one that is, would benefit from having a larger societal discussion because there clearly is a difference of opinions and beliefs in terms of how much intervention is necessary and important and valued. Now, I obviously have one view as a public health person, but I've spent a lot of time talking to people who don't share my views and I don't agree with them, but their views are not trivial. You know, I mean, I think we do have to have some level of, of conversation of, about it because I, I hate to see us sort of 
cleaving off into separate tribal entities. Um, I think for the ultimate long-term functioning of public health, we have to involve people in, in our decision-making and that includes priority setting. Certain vaccines are required for children to go to school. Um, are there settings where you think a, a vaccination for COVID should be required, uh, for example, in healthcare settings? Um, if, and if so, where else? Healthcare settings, I mean, for me, in particular, nursing homes. Um, nursing homes, healthcare workers, but also, I mean, a half to a third of the deaths in the United States have been in nursing homes. That is the place where we can save the most lives. And even though the residents are now largely protected, we continue to see deaths occur in nursing homes in part because vaccines don't offer complete protection, particularly among very vulnerable residents. And we know that vaccine uptake in nursing homes among staff is incredibly low in some places. Sometimes a th only a third of the staff are vaccinated. Um, I, I am generally not um, as enthusiastic about mandates at this point um, as some of my colleagues are, but I can say in, in the context of healthcare, I think that it makes a lot of sense. Do you think that boosters will be required or uh, be necessary? I think it's, po it's possibly likely for um, people that we worry the most about, um, people who are, are immunocompromised, um, people that we worry that were they to um, be infected with COVID that they would not survive that infection. Um, I think we have good data so far that the, the vaccines protect people from serious illness, which is my best hope for the vaccines. But there are certain populations that need a little extra help. And that's the population that Israel right now is, is looking to administer booster shots to. Um, I think that's possible. That said, it raises ethical questions because again, that means more vaccines being used by high income countries before even the most vulnerable people in other parts of the world have had their first shot. Um, going back to your uh, original work um, in New York City right after 9-11, um, 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 we've had um, public health crises in the past and no doubt we'll have in the future from E. coli outbreaks, contaminated water, COVID, 9-11. What are the first steps taken by epidemiologists or clues that you look for in public health um, for encountering a new case? I mean, you mentioned looking at over-the-counter products, which I thought was fascinating. What are some of the clues that you kind of look for? Yeah, so um, that was a really interesting approach, monitoring the sale of over-the-counter medicines. And there's other things that that field is called syndromic surveillance. So the idea that you could monitor changes in syndromes, we don't know what you have, but we know that you're experiencing something um, as opposed to a diagnosis where we tell you exactly what you have. Um, Syndromic surveillance um, had a lot of promise initially. Um, it's still very much used, but I found then, and I think increasingly it's borne out that it probably is not as helpful as the first indication that something's happening. It may, it may flat, it may, it may alert you to look more hard, more harder at the data, the other data that you have, but it's not specific enough to know what's going on and to take action. So um, increasingly when it's used, it's used to help monitor an event that you already know is going on and then giving you more frequently updated data to tell you, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it growing in size and in, in scope? Um, I would say uh, probably if you ask epidemiologists these days what the most valuable data they have, it's usually highly specific diagnostic information like from laboratories. Um, increasingly we're using tests performed outside of laboratories um, 
but um, we often need that laboratory confirmation to truly know what's going on. Um, it really is helpful if we have a baseline of data that we can compare to. Um, so an example, I would think, if we go back to the early days of COVID, um, what we knew was happening was that there was a outbreak of viral pneumonia in, um, in Wuhan, China. And it was alerted, according to the public story, it was alerted um, by clinicians who saw, you know, something wasn't right. They were seeing younger people than would normally get infected. They were seeing too many people. They noticed a number of them had a connection to the seafood market. That's a fairly common way that these events are found. There's an astute clinician who says, mm, this isn't usual. And then they alert somebody and they go and they look. And then ultimately what wound up happening is they sequenced, you know, they isolated a pathogen, they sequenced it and they saw it's a coronavirus that we never saw before. And that really alerted the world. Um, that's pretty much related to the, the last question. Um, Dr. Fauci um, has been um, has announced in the papers today, is recommending vaccine research um, in advance of so-called impending pandemics that you uh, referenced um, that are not related to the coronavirus, um, Ebola, uh, loss of fever, et cetera. Um, what, what is, what is your position on this research and why, as we talked earlier, why we were lucky that research had been done on the coronavirus before the pandemic? Yeah, so if I wanna keep myself up at night, it's to start to wonder what would have happened if we didn't have the vaccines that we now have and just how this would have all played out given the fact that never before have we been able to um, get a vaccine into arms as quickly as we have. Um, I feel incredibly fortunate for us and proud, frankly, as an American that had a, you know, that this country had such an important role in developing the vaccines that are now being used across the world that we have, I'm so, we're so lucky to have these vaccines, but luck is probably not the right word. I mean, it was hard work and it was hard work that first of all, progressed on two fronts. One is that as soon as the, I mentioned the SARS epidemic of 2003, as soon as we learned about that a coronavirus could cause severe illness and be transmitted between people, um, the likes of which we had never seen before from a coronavirus. As soon as we learned about that in 2003, scientists got to work on figuring out how could we make a coronavirus vaccine. That work enabled them to figure out that, you know what, if we were to develop a vaccine, it would be good to go after the spike protein, which is what the virus uses as a key to enter the, you know, to unlock our cells and to enter our cells. We benefited so much from that research that had happened since, you know, for more than 10, 15 years ago. Similarly, we had also done a tremendous amount of research on one on seeing if we could use mRNA technology to develop new vaccines and other treatments. Um, that has also been going on for, for more than a decade. So we got incredibly fortunate that this pandemic was caused by a virus that we already knew a whole lot about and knew a lot about how to make a vaccine for, and that could avail ourselves of this um, also well-researched field of using mRNA approaches. That has given us an enormous leg up. Now, if this virus, if this pandemic had been caused by another pathogen, you know, I, I don't think we would be in the same fortunate situation that we're in today. 
And so that's why it's really important that we do the basic research in advance of the next crisis. We can think about what the, the, the most likely suspects are in terms of viral families that could go on to cause pandemics if a new one emerged and began able and was able to spread among people. But we need to do that research now because we have no idea what we're going to need when, but we should start with the most likely subjects and make sure we have that baseline information so that, you know, God forbid something else happens, we can take advantage of of that knowledge. Which is why the director of NIH um, has said that this proposal of uh, Tony Fauci's is compelling. Well, you have given us a lot of compelling information and a lot to think about. Um, so many thanks to you, um, Dr. Nozo. Um, before we sign off, um, those friends who will be participating in the dinner meeting rooms, please log in by 645 using the Zoom link that you received today. Um, or earlier. Jennifer Nozo will join us again at 7 Mountain Time, and I hope you all will be joining us next Monday, August 2nd, when Maya McGinnis will discuss another naughty issue, fiscal sanity in an insane world. Thank you so much to everyone. This has been a special presentation of Seminars at Steamboat. For more information about the seminars, visit seminarsatsteamboat.org. The podcast was produced by Ryan Thompson for KUNC. Special thanks to Jenny Lay, Doug Usher, and the Steamboat Pilot and Today for their support. Find information on future seminars at seminarsatsteamboat.org. Music is When I'm With You by Scott Holmes. Find more of his work at scottholmesmusic.com. This is KUNC. KUNC.